Good morning and welcome to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Ben Dobbin with you this morning. It is Friday the 16th of February. A very good morning to everybody listening to us across the Resonate Broadcast Network through 4SB in Kingaroy, 4ZR in Roma, 4VL in Charleville, 4HI in Emerald, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longridge, 4GC Charters Towers and the Hot Country Network, a very good morning to you. Lots to like about what is going on in this state and lots not to like. The Broncos launched their season last night. I spoke with Cameron Dick, the Deputy Premier. He's going to come on the show next week to answer a few questions. I had a good chat with him last night and he said he definitely would come on, so I'm looking forward to that. But gee whiz, this land grab and this native title claim at Tabir is something of massive concern. We're going to highlight and identify what has gone on with the Tabir land transfer without any consultation whatsoever of the community we're going to look at that. Lawrence Springborg will join us very shortly. I'll explain that whole situation. We're also going to talk to a Hall of Famer, a Rugby Hall of Famer from Kunnamulla, Tanya Osborne. She'll join us as well. What a great story she's done from Kunnamulla till she was 18 and then headed to Roma and has absolutely brained it. Today, she will be inducted into the Rugby Union, Queensland's Rugby Union Hall of Fame, which is an unbelievable feat. We'll talk to her as well. Susan McDonald is back for the first time in 2024. We'll have a look at the markets. And there's some councillors and some mayors that are going back in. They don't even have to, they don't even have to campaign because it's not contested. This is Rural Queensland Today. A very good morning to everybody, wherever you are, and let's get into it. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today, Friday morning, the 16th. For the first time in 2024, she's back on deck. She'll be with us every single Friday on Rural Queensland today. Senator Susan McDonald, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, it is terrific to be back on with you, and there is so much to talk about, so much that's relevant to to us right across regional Australia, and um, and great to talk to you, Ben. It's um, a big year, uh, election year in Queensland from a state perspective. Uh, council elections coming up in the next month as well. And really, um, your government, uh, through estimates, has, has just seen a lot of garbage come through this Labor government. They are absolutely 100% hell-bent on trying to destroy rural and regional Australia. It's very, very clear through some of their actions, lack of funding, shifting funding for roads, all these kind of things. But one of the legislations that we haven't touched on is the right to disconnect. Um, this has been pushed through, that, and, and I'm not quite sure how it works in rural and regional Queensland. I, I, I just don't know. Senator, it, it's almost embarrassing in some ways. Well, Ben, this is exactly right. Right to disconnect is part of a suite of industrial relation changes that the government has uh, put through the, the House and then the Senate. Uh, the, the lack of proper consultation and thinking about it is reflected in a couple of things. The most important one, though, being that neither employers nor employees have been consulted. This is a fanciful piece of legislation that belongs sometimes back in the 50s because the world has changed. People are more flexible. They want to work differently. They want to be able to say, I'm going to take the kids, pick up the kids from school this afternoon uh, and I'm going to do some work tonight. Or if you're in the case of regional places, you know, if you're driving a truck, if you're uh, doing a whole lot of activities that uh, you need to be able to talk to your, your business manager or uh, to, to employees to work out what's the state of the roads, what's going on, has that delivery been made? 
you know, the world doesn't stop at five o'clock in the afternoon. And, and that's just the, the reality of the world we live in. It's very different. So, my wife my wife literally works at the moment um, 8 o'clock till 4 in the office. Now, from 4 till 6 with the twins, she's hands-on. But last night when I got home at 7.15, she'd been tapping away on her laptop working and worked through till 9 o'clock. And there was phone calls to other lawyers, uh, to paralegals. That's just a given. That's just a given how it works. It, it, it is... It's just the way it is. I had the Broncos doctor say to me the other day, he said, all right, okay, so I can't ring anybody after five o'clock. But he said, when my secretary rings me after five o'clock because her son's sick and she wants to have the day off, am I not expected to take that call? Um, this is where they do- it hasn't been thought out or somebody wants to leave early because their child is in a play at school or is- for whatever reason. So what the the employer doesn't take the call then because he's under the same under the same law? It, it is absolutely ridiculous. Well, imagine if you're the school principal. I've had a school principal contact and say, every Sunday I send out an email to all my teachers about what's going on for the week ahead, and uh, you know, for the planning and what they need to know. And and yes, they're expected to read it, but. Currently, he's taking legal advice because as the legislation stands currently, he would be in breach. And the worst part is, Ben, is that because the Greens drafted this legislation, it has got provisions in it that makes that a criminal act, a criminal act, that if you get that wrong, you would have the potential to go to jail. Now, it is my understanding that the government's going to try and fix that and make it just a fine, but I mean, again, imagine being told thousands of dollars. Exactly, exactly. But you know, there's other provisions in this as well uh, about uh, in, enforcing that there be union officials uh, in workplaces, and that the employer has to pay for that person to go off to do union training. I mean, this is just uh, uh, an attempt by the unions to to re-exert influence. There's only 10% of Australia's population is a member of the union and they want to roll it back out into every business right across the country. And it's crazy because, you know, particularly regionally, um, you know, employers and employees generally uh, work together because they know that they need to rely on each other to deliver goods and services to places where, you know, the government doesn't give much of a bugger about. They're a long way from the capital cities, uh, and this industrial re- industrial relations legislation will will mean that uh, businesses are saying, I'm going to try and do this with less people or I'm sure. going to do less in my business or well, I'm no going one to wants, No one wants the heat. I, I spoke to a business yesterday and they were like, we don't know how we're going to operate this. If, if, if an employee gets their nose out of joint, and they and as it is, it's hard enough to get employees to stick and stay, and then they want to take us through. What happens then? And and this is what is being created by this government. It really is absolutely diabolical. Moving on, um, some of the environmental funding is just uh, it begs to believe where money is going at the moment and who the government are funding to try and. In what ways they're doing it, it's scary almost, Senator. Well, when we got at the last budget, the federal government, the Albanese government, Tanya Plibersek as the environment minister, 
has given money to the Environmental Defenders Office. And the reason that they've said that is that everyone uh, has the right to access the law. Now, that would be fine if that was true, but what they've done at the same time is that they have reduced funding for regional people, for um, uh, landowners and, and community groups to access funding to negotiate native title claims. So apparently it's okay to fund environmental uh, activists, but it's not okay to try and understand land tenure regionally. So that's my first gripe. But the Environmental Defenders Office has uh, been shown in a recent High Court case, has been shown to be acting in a reckless way, that they have been guiding witnesses, that they have been misleading Indigenous uh, communities, uh, and that they have been um, uh, disruptive to the process of government making decisions around tenure, and uh, and then they've been, you know, really coaching witnesses and um, and as I said, Indigenous communities to try and block some of these investments. Which let us be very clear: it is royalties and taxes from the big uh, mining projects, from agricultural investments. Uh, they are the things that pay the bills for Australia. They are the things that ensure that we have hospitals and roads and schools and the first world lifestyle that we enjoy. And uh, this idea that we can stop these uh, well-run professional uh, operations that are done to a very high standard internationally uh, is just ludicrous. So not only is the EDO behaving uh, in that way, as they've been shown by the High Court to be behaving in a reckless manner, um, we now have social media posts where they are uh, trying to call for people to be groomed to, to block uh, projects. Um, you know, I'm not sure what else we're going to discover, but why is it that the Australian taxpayer is funding these activities? And when we've been asking questions of the department about, well, how does that fit in the guidelines? How, how on earth do you, are you not reviewing this, um, this kind of behaviour, why are you not investigating uh, what absolutely I don't believe is in um, Australia's best interest and certainly not regional Australia's best interest, uh, how are they still being funded? So we'll be asking some more questions of that today. But, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating stuff then because in regional and rural Australia, we're just trying to get a level playing field. We That's want not, the same access never to Never been level. Never been level. Don't. And, and instead, we're getting these groups who are, who are actually, you know, actively working against uh, building the wealth of this country, ensuring our kids have got great jobs and, you know, good projects. We have a great tax um, income, so that we can all, you know, live the way we want uh, and not like a, a, a second world country. Yeah, you did right. Hey, I really uh, appreciate your time this morning. Great to chat. Thanks so much um, for everything, and we're really happy that we've got you back every Friday on Rural Queensland Today. Senator Susan McDonald, thanks for your time this morning. Hey, talk to you next Friday, Ben. Good on you. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Ben Dobbin with you this morning. It's the 16th of February, a Friday morning across Rural Queensland Today. And look, um, this is a contentious issue because there is a lot of facts that haven't been disclosed. The Tobier land, land transfer 
um, that is being at the pro- moment at the heart of the community, the to be a community, um, is causing some outrage in different areas. Now, this is in the seat of Maranoa, um, and it's also um, in the electorate, the Gundawindi electorate, um, in the local council. The mayor for Gundawindi is Lawrence Springborg, and he joins me this morning on Rural Queensland today. Lawrence, firstly, um, congratulations. You'll be running unopposed in the up-and-coming elections. That's a, a, a big tick, mate, for yourself and for your council. Um, congratulations on that. But this is probably not what you needed on a Friday um, with uh, a lot of, I suppose, upset, un- misunderstanding in some ways and just not a lot of clarity about what is going on in Tabir. Yes, thank you very much, Tomo, and, and thanks you for your uh, words there. Uh, can I also thank the community, and I do understand that uh, the circumstance and, and this support comes with probably a, a higher burden of responsibility and obligation uh, to the people of the Gundawindi Regional Council area, and I do understand that uh, there are always issues that we have to keep navigating through, and this is one of those. And from council's perspective, we just want to deal with the facts. I mean, we can all have their op- our opinions, and I've got my opinions on certain things, but I just want to deal with some facts yeah. with regards well, can to I, this. Can I ask you some stuff, and then and yes, you, you clarify can. me? Um Yep. It, it, from what I'm understanding, and, and this is the limited amount of information that I've been given, um, obviously the meeting took place last Monday on the February the 12th at Correct. the Tabea Kindergarten. Now, yes. this has come off the back of uh, members of the Tabea public wanting to buy some land and over the last three to four years not being given a lot of answers, not being told he's a publican, whether or not he could buy some stuff. Um, that hasn't worked out. And then finally, it became aware and apparent that a native title claim had been put on this land, which is the Tabir Reserve, which has been in the community for over 100 years. There's no debate that that wasn't originally um, Aboriginal land. Absolutely no debate whatsoever. Um, But that has, over the last 100 years, been used um, by the community as a natural reserve. There's been fishing. There's been all these other things. And then, for some unknown reason, this has been transferred in ownership to the Indigenous Corporation where their offices, um, and I've looked into them this morning, they don't even live anywhere near it, but that's just the way it is. But am I right in saying you had no input and no say in this decision at all? Can I can I actually just give some background with regards to this? Uh, there is this, I think called the Two Beer Reserve. The Two Beer Reserve uh, has existed in its current form since 1906. It is a camping and watering reserve for stock movement purposes. So there is no broader recreational purpose underpinning that. Uh, people have, however, used it, and no one's really bothered too much about it. But it's a camping and watering reserve for stock uh, watering. So it's a uh, stock route. It's a stock route. It's, uh, correct, correct. And right. that is that is real, and that's actually been confirmed. But people have assumed a, a greater access, and we understand that there is no argument with regards to that. There is no under. There is no instrument that actually sits under that that says that that is. That is a use um, that it's actually been made as a reserve for. So it's basically a stock route. Council is the trustee of that land. So basically, we are the tenant on the land. At best, you could say we are a property manager. Uh, based now, what's happened since 
the advent of native title, which came down with Marbo some 30 years ago. That's now established in the law of the land, not by the parliament, not by, you know, you know the government, but by the highest court of the land. It's like sure. people's certain rights. So that cannot be taken away. That's a part of our evolving law. So that actually sits there. Now, in 2016, there was a determination that was made by the federal court that actually found that the Big and Bull people were the traditional custodians of the land across our region. So that's now been prescribed. So they're now seen as the traditional custodians. Native title sits over uh, technically or coexists with um, all uh, reserve land. And I've got a 28,000 acre forestry lease for grazing purposes where that does as well. Native title proponents are able to make an application uh, to the state basically to assume the management rights or, or access with regards to that. So, so they want pretty much, pretty much the Native Title Corporation want to control the stock route at Tabir. Let, let's, let's just dumb it down. That's the Big and Bull people, the Aboriginal Corp, Big and Bull Aboriginal Corporation uh, want to control and they've made a claim on that piece of land in your electorate? They have made, and I'll just tip this through, they have made an application for that, okay, because of a continuing connection. They've actually established that, okay, so this process is outside of council. Sure. We have, we have no control. The state is the decision maker. They basically own the land on behalf of the people of Queensland as the Crown, and the Big and Bull people, or the native title owners, uh, have a coexisting title established by the court. So they've actually made an application to basically assume trusteeship of that land in the first instance, which the council in 2020 considered this before I was the mayor. I was actually in the public gallery at the time because I was I was wanting to be there because I was, I was actually running for mayor. And the council at the time said that it would be acceptable to council to transfer, given that they're asking the council's opinion, if additional land was made available as a part of it for urban expansion, if the water um, access, which was critical for the town, was protected by way of easement, if there was a, a stock route that was created around the town and if there was a process of public consultation. And then that process went on over the next three or four years and then my council was approached by the state on the 20th of November saying this has now moved up a level, um, the, the, all of the discussions, and that the, um, the application for something called Indigenous or Aboriginal Freehold which is a non-transferable title, which basically means it's similar to a trusteeship, but it's held and it sits over uh, the native title because the native title continues to exist regardless. It can't be it can't be sold, it can't be transferred, it can't be mortgaged. Council reinforced its position um, as per its original resolution, which was in 2020. water protection, uh, new stock route, easement for. Yeah, which was just what you, exactly what you said. The freehold land yeah, free, available yeah. for community expansion yeah. and consultation. We're in, asked by the state um, to make the, to to consider this in camera. Um, I said we would not do that because there needs to be a process of public consultation, and we considered it in public and reinforced our position. As a consequence of that, um, and and the meeting was open public, and that's what I do every. Every time it's a reinforcement of what council did four years ago, uh, we got, got some inquiries with regards to this because they're always legitimate issues. Sure. A council established, um, and we're in caretaker period. Um, we had a meeting in Tubia the other night. Um, 
there was a count of 100 people who attended, which was a large group of people in Tuvia, and I outlined all of this and indicated that we needed the process of public consultation. That was critical to identify all the issues. I, I explained the reality of what the reserve was currently there for, being a stock route for stock camping and watering purposes, and um, we wanted consultation so all the other community issues could be dealt with. And so... Uh, the, so where the, is it at uh, now? Where is, where it, it, It's gone up a notch, and I un- completely respect what you're saying. We're mm. talking with uh, Gundawindi Mayor Lawrence Springboard around the 2B <laughs> stock route where it is now uh, looking like it will be owned by the Bigamal Aboriginal Corporation um, who have put a claim on this land, and it is a mm. stock route. So when you asked, and originally the Gundawindi Council, prior to you being mayor, asked for... You, you were happy to hand over this land on the proviso that there was some stipulation to freehold the stock route, the water protection. Did the government at any stage give you a guarantee that that was the case? And is that a possibility or has that just gone to the back burner and they still want no, the land? No, no. Um, they are, in, in the law of the land that's been established, the um, Big and Bull people are able to make an application around this process is protracted and it's not automatic yeah. um, because you've got lots of a uh, native title coexists on a lot of land, including, as I said, 28,000 acres, which I'm a lessee of. Um, there is a very, very high threshold. Now, over the ensuing two, three years, there's been discussions with the department backwards and forwards around the uh, preservation of the stock route, which has been agreed to. But the Big and Bull people had to actually cede their native title. Native title can't be taken under the law of the land. It's like your freehold title. It's protected by Lord law. They've given an undertaking to, to that. There's additional blocks being identified in two beer um, and also um, easement works around the access to water. Now, we've said that um, the public consultation was to be a critical part of that. It is. It was the missing element. The department has actually agreed to undertake that process to identify the other issues that may be important to the community, which we feel um, is, is very, very critical, and it has to be. But we can't lead that process. We were told specifically it was nothing to do with that, and there's no provision under law to enable us to do it because we're basically the tenant and we're just trying to you're uh, trying to negotiate you're trying to negotiate something on the proviso you actually don't have any say if if the if the aboriginal land corporation and the big and bull aboriginal corporation decide that they don't want to do that in the end let's be honest they can just say no they 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 can absolutely say no well, that is, that is correct because they have a coexisting title. It would be a bit like me coming to your place and saying, Dobbo, I've got a plan here for your place. We're moving in tomorrow. Um, and you'd say, no, that's our, this is our place. You've got no legal right or entitlement because I don't. Well, and the, the Big and Bull people actually, even though we're trustee, this transfer has to be consented to. But if there were any change of use on that land currently, you know, there can be no change of use on that land currently, even if the existing arrangements put in place without the consent of the native title holders, because they have an interest. If that, if the reserve were to be upgraded to sure. a recreation reserve, and this didn't even go through, for example, then that could only happen with the consent of those who actually uh, are the joint landowners, which is not the council; it's native title holders. So, from our perspective. This is critical, this process of consultation. At the meeting the other night, the, big, the representative of the native title group got up and said, well, look, from our perspective, this is important to the community. We understand it. This is a shared community. It was a very 
um, I think it was a very conciliatory statement, and they said that we are very happy to come up with access guidelines around this, so we want to be able to have shared use and to look after it. And subsequent to that, which is unbeknownst to a lot of people, uh, there has been a lot of discussion now happening with members of the two-beer community and, and uh, uh, the traditional custodians around building those particular principles. It really took it to a whole new level of cooperation. Now, that's happening, uh, local groups being formed um, to to undertake that process and frankly if that happens I think that's probably the best oh, outcome that is that's a the community now leading it that's the community now leading that so yeah. it's so there is a there, there, there is a, a divert, quite a divergent view in the community with a lot of people um, who were very encouraged by that and now actively engaging in that particular process Lawrence Springboard, our guest this morning this is rural Queensland today on the resonate broadcast network we'll take a break come back with some more Welcome back, Gundawindi Regional Mayor Lawrence Springboard talking about the Tabir issue around the land being given back to the native title and the Aboriginal Land Corporation. Lawrence, I would suggest that working groups within communities should be formed because I would say that this situation that is happening in the Gundawindi Regional um, Shire would absolutely happen everywhere else so if you can as community groups and and it's a very good flag in the sense that look i don't agree with this i've got to be honest with you because you know it's taken a hundred years and it's been used in the community i understand who is now and that's well above our pay rate who who is the traditional owners of it i get all that but i don't understand how now this land has come about and i understand that there could be charges it's a bit like the gravel pit situation that we've been talking about that constantly over the last couple of months but this is a scary situation but if communities can get together and get working groups in their areas so they are prepared for this and get their ducks lined in a row i think everybody's going to be a lot better out because i suspect that meeting at uh, the tabia kindy uh, last week would have been fairly heated fairly concerning uh people would have been you know a little bit worried because they think that this is just the beginning and in an electorate where Senator Pauline Hanson came out with this stat as well, where the the most important you know rejection of the no vote was in the the federal electorate of Maranoa, so the highest no vote in Australia, and so automatically people have a different sort of view in that electorate, you know. Yeah, well, Dobber, can I just say on that? And I and I wasn't a no voter supporter, and uh, I actually voted against it, and um, that's my opinion. That's, this has absolutely nothing to do with the no vote. Um, I I have a very strong view on that, and I just stated it there. This is a view. This is about the the law of the land, yep. which is established by the highest court of the land. Yep. And my opinion and your opinion is not going to change that. But the only way we're going to deal with it is to actually go through cooperation. Yeah. And you just mentioned the gravel pits. Yeah. Most most councils around Queensland at the moment are in diabolical situations because they can't access the gravel pits because of exactly the same reason. Same reason. That is not a problem in the Gundawindi Regional Council. Because our council, under the previous council before I was mayor, sat down and worked cooperatively with the native title um, owners to come up with something called an Indigenous Land Use Agreement, where they were able to secure uh, secure the uh, their public works native title by agreement was extinguished on that, which it required you know that once again native title holders have to agree to that, and we also were able to say well our gravel pits, so we've got actually a standard 
use thing where I've got access to our gravel pits. Other councils that don't have Indigenous land use agreements, they're in diabolical circumstances. It's a, it's a nightmare. But I'm we, hearing it everywhere. We, yep. we, 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 did, we didn't have that because we sat down and worked through it. And that means that ours is protected so we can do our public works. And so, so there are things that the communities can do. And from our perspective, I said to the Director General the other day um, of the department, um, we had a good discussion and other people, that they need a better process of dealing with this stuff because this won't be the first time. Won't no. be. It's not the first time because a lot of this has actually happened around Queensland. The difference with this is we were able to do it um, in a public way and uh, we've actually now got a process of consultation which is not facilitated under the legislation and that's not the fault of the big and bull people. That's the fault of government with a process that doesn't consider public consultation. So they've now indicated that there should be a process of public consultation and communities should drive this. But communities know each other because there's been a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, forebears of the Big and Bull people worked on those properties around there over the years and are well known. And I saw that the other night when people from both sides were there going, hey, look, I know your, uh, your grandfather worked on you know, this station, that station, whatever else. And if you deal with this stuff as people, you can work through it. But again, uh, that's my opinion. I mean, I have no legal right to say you can or can't do anything. We're a property manager and we are trying to actually just get a process where people uh, are able to have their concerns uh, and their needs addressed. And we've actually come a long way with regards to that. But again, we are not the decision maker. The government's the decision maker. We're not the land owner. Um, we are just basically the tenant, and there's this transfer that's that's at foot. Um, it's considered an departmental process, and the um, native title holders have said they are actually happy to have a process of um, open access to that. Which, frankly, if that's formalised and agreed to, Dobbo is probably better than what exists potentially, because at the moment there is no right of access for recreational purposes or other purposes. The only thing is that it's a stock camping and watering reserve for stock camping watering purposes only. We administer it. We haven't been worried about people going on and off there, but if push came to shove beyond that, then then there is no writing law and that actually opens up a whole range of other litigation issues if there was, you know, claims and those sorts of things. So yeah, it's an interesting situation yeah, and one is. that's going to, obviously, we, we will stay in contact with you about it because as the process continues, um, there's going, look, there's a lot of, in, in, the, in, in the initial stages, there's a lot of people going, well, you know, w- what's going on? Because they don't know. But if we can get to the facts and we can get to some agreement, Absolutely. we can get a new, we can get freehold, some new freehold, some water protection of that water, right. and a new stock route on the other side of town, and then they can give back... They can't, though, can they build houses on that land or the change of use? Do they well, need to go through the correct, the, the exact yes, same thing? They're in the council, exactly the, so they have to come through your offices to if yes. they wanted to change the use. Absolutely, same thing applies as everyone else. I mean, we, we are not at liberty to say it's none of our business to say what would all not happen to that land or what would be seeking to do with that land if it were transferred. As I understand from what was inferred and as what has been said in the media by the representatives, they are interested in a tourism venture and cultural, um, you know, cultural related things. There is a huge call in our area for cultural related tourism. I know some of the tourism operators, if that is the case, 
then then there is a real opportunity there. But from what I can gather, everything that's been said, it's related to cultural and tourism. But that is but that is not my business. I, I don't you know that's not for me to say. But if there's anything that requires uh, a change of use because everything would be a change of use on that or any other land that's subject to underlying native title or non-exclusive native title if there's a transfer, the same sort of things apply with regards to town planning, you know, all of that sort of stuff, other government requirements. There's nothing that's any different. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Lawrence, appreciate your time. Congratulations you. on going, once again, being Mayor unopposed. Uh, I really appreciate your time this morning and thank you for giving me uh, an explanation on the whole situation. It is murky and we understand it. Um, and every single um, electorate and council should be aware that this is coming and this is something that is happening across Queensland. So it's, Absolutely. It, yeah, it's a very, very uh, interesting yeah, time. Absolute absence of information and absence of community engagement leads to people to being concerned and sometimes with the wrong information and sometimes with the right information. Yep. I appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you, you, Lawrence. Cheers, mate. Have a good one. You. Appreciate Bye-bye. your time. Lawrence Bye-bye. Springboard, Rural Queensland today. Let's take a look at the markets from yesterday. 3,000 head yarded in Blackall. Good falls of local rain saw numbers reduced to 3,000 head for the first Blackall sale of 2024. Good pens of local prime cattle were on offer and all the usual processes operating. Two large consignments of steers and heifers from the Territory dominated um, the yearling sales with the most of the heavy feeders drawn locally. Lightweight restocker sea mussel steers, 202.80, started strong with sales of 450, you average 435. We all, a large number of planer types, 280 to 330, average 309. Heavy feeders sold to strong demand, selling to 358.2, averaging 345. Heavy feeder heifers, 272, averaging 249. Growing steers to the processors sold to 298 to average 282. And prime heifers made 278 medium cows to 232, averaging 224. Heavy prime cows, 520 kilos plus 245 to average 236. Heavy bulls, 264. The best of the cows and calves made $1,550 a unit. Sam Hart reporting on the Blackhall sale yesterday. So they're underway, 3,000 head, and a good yarding as well for them to be there. Emerald operated yesterday as well. And there was a good yarding at Emerald, 2,248 head following some of the usual falls in the district. Emerald vendors penned a smaller yarding, uh, 12.54 less than the previous week. A good yarding met with competition for the regular processing panel. Um, there were some impacted by their couple of couple of buyers were impacted by their plants being shut, but feeders and restockers performed well to keep values above light last week. Lightweight yearling steers sold to 393 to average 379 for the best bred lines and 311 for the planer pens. Medium weight steers, 393, returning averages of 367 to 380. Lightweight yearling heifers averaged 285 to 300 cents with the best selling for 335. Bullock sold the processors to top 309 to return averages of 290 to 303. Feedlot steers topped at 363 to average 289 to 320. Growing heifers went to trade to average 268 to 291 and sell at a top of 299. Heavy four score cows averaged five cents less at 264. 
selling to 277. Heavy bulls to live X made 284 to average 279. With those to processes averaging 279, processes averaged 257 for theirs. A few young cows and calves made $1,150 to 1500 Richard Thompson reporting. And so both yardings, Emerald and Blackall, a little, a fraction cheaper in the sense of what was taking place and going on. But all in all, we're seeing this market a lot better than where it was. And the rain, obviously, is of some concern in some areas because people just can't get their cattle out. Now, look, there's a lot making news around this crime as well, but there is huge deluge with weather at the moment. Um, Brisbane have been smashed this morning with flooding, but I can tell you there is a lot of water taking place um, and a lot of rain coming in the next couple of days. What I will tell you, and this is something that everybody needs to understand, is the crime is not getting any better. We saw yesterday a man has been charged with murder over a horrific death with a tractor. Now, DV is a massive problem, but this bloke from Bow Desert used a slasher, unfortunately, on a rural property south of Brisbane and has been charged with it and ran over his wife. Dreadful. Dreadful. Uh, Our thoughts are with everybody. Just a, a dreadful, dreadful situation. Something I, I, I can't even begin to talk about. Um, just horrific, horrific. So, yeah, I just don't understand. I, I don't understand what is going on, but we have to look at this. The government has to look at this. It's just an absolute nightmare. We'll take a break, come back with Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. You're with Ben Dobbin. It is the 16th of February. Welcome back to Rural Queensland today across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Um, I've been looking forward to this interview uh, all morning. And um, this afternoon at the Queensland Reds long lunch, the third female in the history of the game will be inducted into Queensland's Rugby Union Hall of Fame. Now, this is a special one for all of us because this is... A Queensland country kid done real good. Tanya Osborne, who spent the first 18 years of her life in Cunnamulla before she headed east and ended up in Roma, is going to be part of the Queensland Rugby Union's Hall of Fame. And it's my great pleasure to have her join me this morning on Rural Queensland today. Tanya, firstly, congratulations. What an awesome, awesome achievement. Um, You must be terribly proud. Uh, thanks, Dobbo. Uh, yeah, a um, little bit shocked when I uh, first got the phone call and that. Um, yeah, it's a bit overwhelmed with it, but, you know, great support from uh, my former clubs and, and mates, of course. Um, yeah, just, just looking forward to uh, the day uh, and, enjoy, and enjoy that and especially the, the memories that I have through playing and but all different other sports coming from Kalamawa as well, um, you know, from way, way back then, it, uh, to me, being in the country, I think you always um, had that, you had to fight that little bit harder because it's like the city kids, you know, had everything at their fingertips. So that's the, the sort of thoughts that I had anyway. So, yeah, yeah it is you're a dead right. Day. You're dead right. So, you, you, you grow up in Kunamulla, you head to Roma, you play rugby league for Waddles in Roma until that morphed into the rugby union at the Roma Echidnas when they formed their first ever. 
women's rugby team in 1994. Uh, I just love the fact that the Echidnas were so supportive. Roma is a great town and we they're proud history. But the first the Roma Echidnas pioneered women's the women's team in 1994. That is quite unbelievable, isn't it? Like I mean that's so long ago and where we are now. Can you just talk about how that went and how that began? Yeah, but um I think because the Toowoomba teams um had uh, female Teams, teams up and running, yep. and then um, yeah, so it's like, well, you know, why can't Roma do this? So it's actually Linny Smith, a real good uh, mate of mine, who uh, approached me because Guy Gavron um, was involved with the and Carmel uh, with the rugby club out there, and I think they sort of got the wheels in motion, you know, that we should try and get a, a female team going. And I was nah, not a, you know, I, I didn't get rugby at you know at the time with the ruck and all that sort of stuff. So I was like, nah. But then once I started training, I'm like, yeah, this is pretty good. So, you know, we did heaps of travel. We were doing the Byron Bay Sevens. We'd come down, play Toowoomba. You know, uh, we'd had um, nationals in Brisbane and that sort of stuff. And then, you know, you start to get to know people. And then from Roma, I was coming down. I'd played a couple of games for West against other clubs, you know, just to fill in. So you were just sort of playing when, whenever and with whoever you could. Just to get a run. Yeah. And the big thing about it is <clears throat> I I want to get to where it is now, but there would have been some hard times. It just wouldn't have been – like w- when we talk with Ali Brigginshaw from the league perspective, she talks about, mate, playing on fields where there were – you know, there weren't even proper goalposts or markings when she started playing rugby league, women's rugby league. Like just how different it is to now. Can you give us some of those early – those early thoughts on it and how it went for us, like when you started playing rugby union? Um, I, our club was – Roma was very, very supportive. We always – well, they only pretty much had the, the one field there, but, you know, we were always um, on on that main field. Um, but going to Toowoomba, you know, we, we played at Gold Park, so um, – when, when I came down to South, you know, you sort of, yeah. uh, at, at Brisbane, you were sort of given, you know, maybe the in goal to train in and, you know, that sort of stuff. But um, I didn't actually care, though. You know, I was training with my mates. I didn't, you know, that didn't stop me training or playing what, what limited space we had. Sure. So Roma had been very, very supportive, though. And then at my end of playing, when I, I was still with brothers, they were, they were brilliant. They were really, really good. Yeah. Very supportive of the women's um, teams, yeah. So you obviously play for the Wallaroos. Um, you play in World Cups. Yeah, you won Brisbane Premierships for Brothers in 98 and 2001. I just love at 47 that you decide <laughs> to have a complete career shift and you join yeah. the Army. I mean, seriously, that's got to be just for rugby, isn't it? I think I'd always wanted to join the army. It didn't pan out when I was young, and I was with, um, you know, my job for a long, long time. I was like, you know what? If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So yeah, at 47, I I joined the army and artillery of all things as well. Yeah. So yeah, so I did that for four four years, and then during my time there, I'd um, yeah played uh, rugby as well. So, yeah, that's the best thing, and and that's the best thing playing for the army. How proud are you of what rugby is in the women's game now? I mean, the Santos Festival of Rugby last week, you caught up with friends and 
there was the game was played for the ten year Osborne Cup. I mean, you pinch yourself. Yeah, I do. I, that, it's funny that cup's been running about yeah. uh, 11, 11 years now. So it was a um, mate of mine. He'd he'd phone Bodgy Lingard. He's, he's since now gone, but um, yeah, he phoned me. Mate, they've got this trophy out here named after you, and I'm like, oh, you know, that's pretty cool. And by that, when he'd phoned me, it was like three years in, and no one had sort of phoned and gone, yeah, do you actually want to come out and present this thing? So, and then it sort of kept going and going, and then it was uh, Bodgy's daughter many, many years later, and I said, Renee, no one's actually ever really said, did you want to come out? And I forget, you know, you don't think about it all the time, so you never really go, oh, my cup's on this year, you know, type thing. So she must have went back and said something, and then I got a phone call to go, do you actually want to come out? And I did. So my first year out there was its 10th year, and I went, holy shit. So I went last year. Unreal. Yeah, and and then again this year. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. So I thought, well, I better get out there before it's actually a memorial trophy. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Hey, listen, I I can't congratulate you enough on being uh, inducted into Queensland Rugby Union Tool of Fame. Many people say that you paved the way for women's rugby in 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 Queensland. Many many people know the the blood, sweat, and tears that you gave for the Wallaroos and for also all the teams. But it it is special for rural and regional Queensland because of your history, because of you come from Kunnamulla, because of Rakidnas, and you're right in what you say. You talk to anybody, you just did. We just are different. You just get it, and 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 it's not as yeah. easy to get to where you got got to. So today yeah. is an extremely special day, um, and I think everybody, um, you know, like you know, it really, really, really was um, and is one of the great awards, I think, and something, um, you know, something that I believe is yeah. absolutely well deserved, and you should be terribly proud. Yeah, thank you. Yep, it'll it'll sink in eventually. I think. <laughs> Good on you. You're yeah, a legend. Yeah, Ten year olds born from Kunnamulla to the Queensland Rugby Union Hall of Fame, which will be announced this afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on Rural Queensland today. No problem. Good on no you. No problem at all. Thanks, Dobbo. We'll, we'll take a break. Come back with more. Well, that's it from us here this morning on Friday morning, the 16th of February. Gee whiz, we've got some trouble. Um, this native title claim it to bear, uh, and if it just starts going this way, we are going to see this happening more and more across the state. We'll keep abreast of this as we look to try and get some sort of resolution on it. Really appreciate everybody's time. Uh, have a great day. Remember, when the wheat is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. More rain coming. Uh, we will be back tomorrow morning with the best of but also Monday morning 9am with Rural Queensland today. Uh, Enjoy your weekend and uh, stay safe on the roads. Till next time from everybody here at Rural Queensland today, it's bye for now.